Genesis chapter 46. Our Bible reading this morning, I'm not sure who that was, but they're not here, they're up north Townsville or someplace. So rather than getting that um, audio linked in, we thought we'd just do it ourselves. I'm going to read two sections. We're, doing, we're supposed to be doing Genesis 46, 47 and 48. Pastor David next week is going to kill off Jacob. Um, 49 and 50. But Pastor David's here this morning somewhere. I can't see him right now, but he's here. There he is. Uh, you can also have 48, brother. I'm not going to get to 48. We can jump 48. I've, I've found far too much material in 46 and 47, and so I'm even going to have to concertina some of that. So this is the story of a man who is... 130 years of age at this point in his life and he's going to live for another 17 years. A man who came to know the true and living God but who in the earlier stages of his life really struggled with being godly, being a person who followed, who was centred on God in his life. He was often going off planning and scheming and running his own life his own way. But over the course of the decades, God eventually got his attention and shapes him. And at this end of his life, in these remaining chapters, we see Jacob performing very well as a follower of the true and living God. He, you'll see strong faith, not perfectly, but you'll see strong faith. You'll see a wonderful testimony and you'll encounter his orientation towards the purposes and the promises of God. So... In the chapters we're jumping into now, this is where Jacob has received word and he's now about to travel down to Egypt. Let's read parts of that. Chapter 46, verse 1. So Israel set out with all that was his, and when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. I am God, the God of your father, he said. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Then Jacob left to Beersheba, and Israel's sons took their father Jacob and their children and their wives in the carts that Pharaoh had sent to transport him. So Jacob, with all of his offspring, went to Egypt taking with them their livestock and possessions that they had acquired in Canaan. Is that where I stop? No, one more? Verse 7. Jacob brought uh, with him to Egypt his sons and grandsons, his daughters and granddaughters, all his offspring. And then if you've got a Bible in front of you, it won't appear on the screen, but if you have a look from verse 8 to 20, which we're not reading, there's a whole list of his names, his sons and his grandsons, um, and there's a mention of one daughter and one broad granddaughter only. So we'll jump to the end of the chapter, verse 28. Now Jacob had sent or sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to get directions to Goshen. When they arrived in the region of Goshen, Joseph had his chariot made ready and he went to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as Joseph appeared before him, he threw his arms around his father and wept for a long time. Israel said to Joseph, now I am ready to die, since I've seen for myself that you are still alive. Then Joseph said to his brothers and um, his father's household, I'll go up and speak to Pharaoh and I'll say to him, 
My brothers and my father's household, who were living in the land of Canaan, have come to me. The men are shepherds. They tend livestock. And they've brought along their flocks and herds and everything they own. When Pharaoh calls you in and says, what's your occupation? You should answer, your servants had tended livestock from our boyhood on, just as our fathers did. And then you'll be allowed to settle in the land, the region of Goshen. For all shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. We'll pause there in our reading. We may come back and read parts of 47. We'll see how we go. Each time Jacob is to make a major move or a major decision, God meets with him. It happened when he was leaving home the first time. Mum said, I think you should go find a wife with my brother, Laban. And God meets with him at Bethel. When he decides to leave Laban way up in north in uh, Haran, uh, God meets with him. So it's time to go. When he gets back to the land of Canaan, God meets with him, wrestles with him. God meets with him again at Bethel. And even here, he's about to go down to Egypt and he's moving in that direction, but he still hasn't left the land because Beersheba is the southernmost point of the land. Um, when he gets to Beersheba, he pauses, seeks God's face, offers a sacrifice. He seems to be, which is commendable, reluctant to make a major move without some direct confirmation from God. God could break the famine in Canaan, just like God could break the drought here in our country. And the circumstances of Jacob's life seem to be moving him towards God wanting him to go to Egypt. So he took a step in that direction, trusting that God would either shut the door if it wasn't what God wanted, or that God would either do nothing or God would bless it. And that's exactly what happened. Jacob is doing a very commendable thing. It's proper to do so, to use your sanctified common sense. He gave us a mind and he expects us to use it. Assuming, of course, in our lives, that, that we're not moving in a direction which is contrary to any biblical instruction or biblical command. We should proceed in that direction, but continue with an attitude of prayer for guidance. Being confident that our Heavenly Father loves us and he'll shut the door, he'll stop it, or he'll allow it to happen because that's what he wants. He can easily overrule and redirect. So Jacob arrives at Beersheba, this southernmost part. All of the patriarchs had lived for some period of their life in Beersheba. Abraham had it. Abraham had planted the tree there, built an altar there. Isaac had. He dug a well there. Now Jacob is back there. In fact, it was in Beersheba, which is where Jacob performed that deception on Isaac, where he took his brother's birthright. That was from Beersheba. So he leaves from the southernmost point of the land and goes all the way out of the land north to Haran. And in latter times, there'll be a saying in the scriptures, judges and the prophets, from Dan, which is way up north, the most northern part, from Dan to Beersheba, from the north to the south, meaning all of the land of Israel. So Jacob now is Beersheba, about to leave, about to enter a desert. On the other side of the desert would be Egypt. And he prays, commendable. He offers sacrifices, the text says. Spurgeon, who preached on this very passage, says he probably offered sacrifices firstly to purge himself but also his household of any sin, that he could hear God. He wanted to give thanks. Joseph was alive and that God had blessed him and his family. But probably, primarily, 
Jacob is offering sacrifices because he's seeking the mind and the will of God. Am I doing the right thing? God had promised him that he would be with him wherever he went, but God had also said very clearly that it was going to be with him in the land. And in fact, God had said to Isaac, do not leave the land. Don't go down to Egypt, Genesis 26. So was Jacob doing the right thing? God, what do you want me to do? And so that very night, the Lord appears to Jacob, calms his fear, settles his mind, appears to him in a vision. This is for about the seventh, eighth time that God has done that in Jacob's life. And interestingly, he calls him Jacob. 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 God doesn't often call his servants by name. You think of any other biblical examples? Samuel? Samuel? There is an example. Abraham? Abraham? There's one in the New Testament. Bloke on a horse going towards Damascus. Saul? Saul? And this one, Jacob? Jacob? They were the ones I could think of. God doesn't often do that. He speaks to us, speaks to us through his word. He can speak to us in vision, speaks to us in all sorts of ways. He doesn't often name us. Names are important to God, in, particularly in this chapter, as we'll learn in a moment. So God appears to him, calls him by name, and calls him Jacob. Is that significant? As Pastor Brendan pointed out to us last week, at the end of chapter 45, it, refer, it sort of has this jump from Jacob to Israel. Jacob is his old name. It's his name that is often used of his worldly ways. And Israel is his new name that is acting under God's direction. And sometimes, in some contexts, that's true. But in 46, 47, 48, in these last chapters of Genesis, it's almost like the names are just used interchangeably. It doesn't quite have that clear distinction of uh, Jacob is when he's being ungodly and Israel's being when he's responding to what God is saying. But you can pursue that and think that through. I couldn't find a consistent uh, in the chapters that we're going to be looking at. just seems to be interchangeable. So God appears to him and then God says some wonderful things to him. <clears throat> I am God. I'm the God of your father. He's reminding him of the covenant promises that God has entered into him with him. Don't fear. Fear not. Don't be frightened to go. I will make you great there. Verse 4, I will go with you. I will bring you up again. And Joseph will be with you when you die. He will close your eyes in death. You will get to see Joseph. And I will be with you. And I will fulfill my purposes and promises in Egypt. I will make you a great nation. Why does God say to Jacob, do not fear? Once again, Spurgeon, in his message on this, he feared because he was an old man. He was elderly. And as we get older, we become more resistant to change. And this was a significant change. Maybe that was the first reason. He's 130 years old and he's elderly and he's... Frightened of the future. Secondly, Egypt was full of idols. All sorts of idols. Thirdly, his grandfather Abraham had gone down to Egypt and had failed spiritually. And then finally, and probably most importantly, Jacob would have 
inherited the promises of God. And Genesis 15 is where God told Abraham, Abraham would have told Isaac, Isaac would have told Jacob, as Pastor Brendan said last week. Your descendants are going to go down to Egypt where they will be enslaved and where they will be mistreated for 400 years. That's what God said. At the end of the 400 years, God would bring them back and he would wipe out the Amorites, but because the sins of the Amorites are not yet full. God at work in our world, achieving his purposes. And Jacob is afraid. Am I leading my family, all 70 of us, or 70 plus, into some sort of danger zone? And God says, don't fear. I got this. I want you to do this. I want you to take your children, your grandchildren, go to Egypt. Which is significant if you reflect upon that for a while. That God was taking his people out of the land of Canaan to do two things. One, he was going to put them in almost like an ark, a, a, a situation of safety initially, um, where they would prosper, where they would multiply. They would be removed from the temptations and the difficulties of living in the land of Canaan, where there were great temptations to assimilate with the people. There are glimpses of that in Genesis 38 with Judah and marrying Canaanite wives and um, just adopting the habits and cultures and the gods and the religions of Canaan. And when they went to Egypt, the, Egypts, the Egyptians couldn't stand them. They don't like shepherds, which meant the Egyptians had no intentions of mixing with them. The Egyptians saw themselves as a superior race, which meant Israel was isolated, in a sense, protected that they would become a covenant community of God's people under his blessing. Yep, in time it's going to turn bad. Yes, they're going to fall out of favour and yes, they're going to be enslaved, all of that. But they're going to be significantly bigger and more powerful when that does happen. And again, the purposes of God. He's going to grow them and then he's also going to sanctify them. And they're going to witness the power and the judgment of God as a nation on another nation and that God wants to use them for his purposes in the world. So yes, it was God's will to take Jacob and his family and to go down to Egypt. When Jacob knew that this is what God wanted, he jumped in, boots and all, totally committed which is the truth for us. When you know what God wants you to do, do it. And do it with all your heart. Be fully obedient, sold out, passionate followers of Jesus. We're told several times that he took everybody, everything, all his sheep and livestock, all his possessions and all of his family. He left nothing behind. In verse 32 of that reading, it's even Joseph who is going to testify uh, to uh, to Pharaoh uh, they have brought along with them everything they own. I want you to go to Egypt. And so he takes everything and he goes to Egypt. Listen for us. Jacob has sought God's face. He has heard from God. And he is 
completely committed to doing what God wants him to do. He's developing and growing as a, a godly man. <clears throat> Total obedience, he left nothing behind. And while I didn't read verses 8 to 27, which is that long list of names, I do want to point out a couple of things before we move on. In verses 8 to 27, there is a list of all of Jacob's children and grandchildren, his sons and grandsons primarily. The text does mention that he had daughters, plural, and granddaughters, plural, but they're not named and therefore probably not counted. One daughter is named in verse 7 and one granddaughter is named in verse 17, but the wives of the sons and the husbands of the daughters and the servants, they're not included in the number. And while to us verses 8 to 27 can be incredibly dull reading, it's like reading the telephone book, it's significant to God. Why does God put these genealogies in the Bible? You ever felt like I felt over the years before? Couldn't we just leave them out? But I have learned, I've made myself read them word by word. And there are little golden nuggets in there. And particularly in the book of Genesis, in Genesis 4 and 5, you get the descendants of Cain and Adam. In 10 and 11, you get the descendants of Noah's sons and the descendants of Shem to Abraham. In 36, the descendants of Esau. And here in 46, the descendants of Jacob. These lists are important because they say we are important to God. God notices us. God knows us by name. In fact, you'll say to Moses in Exodus 33, I know you by name. It says the same thing in the prophets. Names are important to God. We are not just a blob or an idea or a thing or an abstraction. We are people made in his image who are unique and who are made to be known by God and to know God. And here is an important list of the 70 descendants, the foundation of the nation of Israel that will work its way out in the centuries to come. There are some problems in the list, of course. I'm not going into those this morning, except to say that when you compare the lists to other parts, chapters, in scripture you'll find different spelling of names and some names put in that aren't in that list and some names that are in that list are left out in that list and so it's a little bit all over the place but there are reasonable explanations for most of those there is a problem with the number 70 and just to allude to this uh, and you can come and talk to Pastor Brandon after this if you want to or Pastor Charlie or Pastor David he'd be a good one because he's studying this for next week it says 70 in here, but Stephen in Acts chapter 7, he says it was 75. Is that a contradiction? Does Bob make mistakes? No. There are good answers to those sorts of things, and so you can come and chat about that if that's a concern to you. The number 70, at, at the very minimum, is a significant number, a symbolic number, not a literal numerical number. Because as I said, wives and servants and husbands are not included in the list. The other thing to note is this. <clears throat> it's 215 years since God said to Abraham, I'm going to make you a mighty nation. 215 years later, they are at 70. God said to Abraham a little bit later, I'm going to make your descendants like the stars of heaven. 
I'm going to make many nations come from you. Your descendants are going to be like the stars of heaven and like the sand on the seashore. All of those promises. 215 years later, 70. What does that teach us? Is God failing? No. God works slowly. He takes his time. In 215 years, he's just getting started. The New Testament picks up on this truth that God is a God who moves often slowly. Where is Jesus? He said he would be back. Well, he's coming in his time. God is not slack concerning his promises, as some call slackness, but he's in control. In the next 430 years, which is double the 215, which is interesting, they go from 70 after 215, you double that, 140. Double that again to get to the 430 years, you would be at 280. What happens in the next 430 years in that little ark of protection down in Egypt where Israel prospers significantly? They go from 70 to over 2 million in 430 years. God's blessing on them. God achieving his purposes. The other thing that God was doing was he took his people out of the land of Canaan, took them down to Egypt to bless them and grow them down there. And what's happening back in Canaan? He's removed his people from that situation. He's removed the salt and light. And so now the sins of the Amorites are going to increase and they're going to be ripe for judgment in that same four centuries. God removed his people to allow people to make sinful choices that God would eventually judge. That reminds me that God places us in situations for salt and light. And we're there for a season. Seasons vary in length. But we have a role and a purpose, just like Israel did in Egypt, and just like Israel did in Canaan. It's to testify to the true and living God. And then sometimes God will remove us from a situation. And it's like, give those people up to the consequences of their sinful choices and to judgment. God is at work. He's working his purposes out, which ought to nudge us into thinking about, gee, where has God placed me and what is my responsibility here? How do I join God in what he's doing in the world? None of us live long enough to see the whole plan of God's purposes, but we're a part of it. And our focus has to be to join God in his work of mission. Jacob has heard from God. Jacob has left. He's on his way. And then when he arrives in Egypt... He sends Judah on ahead to go find out where Goshen is, will you? And they end up in Goshen, which is a very prosperous, fertile northern part of the Nile Delta. And Jacob's, uh, Joseph sets it up because he knows Pharaoh, he knows the Egyptians and their attitude towards his family, shepherds. And he says, when Pharaoh asks you this question, tell him this, and that means that he'll agree that you can go live there, which is the best place for you to live. There's all this sort of political manoeuvring going on. <clears throat> And so when uh, they meet Pharaoh, he says, what do you guys do? And he says, oh, we're shepherds. Oh, oh. Um, we'd like to live in Goshen. Oh, that's a very good idea. Yep, you go live in Goshen. That's Pharaoh's attitude. And it's God again working his purposes out. So what have we said so far before I jump quickly into 47? When seeking God's will, 
like Jacob, try to put your emotions on hold. How he must have been torn in his heart. I want to go to Egypt. My son is alive. I want to go see him. He's certainly attracted towards it. But he puts his emotions on hold and it's wise for us to do the same. And you will need to desire, Lord, what is your will? What's your direction? What do you want for me? George Mueller is the one who said, when seeking God's will, seek to have no will of your own. So you can honestly say, I'm willing, Lord, to do whatever it is that you want me to do. Not my will, your will be done. Put your emotions on hold, Lord, what is it? And respond using your brains, your intelligence and common sense of circumstances are pointing this way. Lord, that's what I'm going to do. If this is not the best, if this is not what you want, then please stop it. Do something. And our loving Heavenly Father will guide and direct us according to his purposes and his plans. Secondly, like Jacob, we need to be thinking about God's purposes. I'm not sure how much of this Jacob would have understood, but God certainly said to him, I want you to go to Egypt. There I'm going to achieve my purpose. I'll make you a great nation. I will bring you back, as I promised. You will see your son. Okay. Jacob is thinking and is aware of God, has given him insight into what God is doing. And the list of the names in chapter 46, which we have jumped over, reminds us that God takes time to work his purposes out. Certainly what God promises, he will do. He always does, as he says he will. And God wants us to think in missionary terms. Even your occupation, whatever it is, think like a missionary. I am salt and light. I'm a follower of Jesus in this context, in this network of relationships. What's God doing? How can I speak truth? Where is the, look for the opportunities when you can speak the truth into people's lives. We are to seek first the kingdom of God in all of our situations of life. I can't remember the names. <clears throat> Maybe someone will and they can shout it out for me. There was a shoe store in Chicago and a bloke in there by the name of D.L. Moody, I think was working in there, and an evangelist, Kendall, came in and shared the gospel with D.L. Moody, and D.L. Moody becomes a Christian. Over the years, grows, becomes a mighty evangelist, travels the world, and millions come to faith. I'll tell you a story after story of D.L. Moody. One of the men that D.L. Moody uh, came to faith through D.L. Moody was a guy called Reuben A. Torrey. One of the men that came to faith, who was a marvellous Bible teacher, um, and you can still buy his works today. One of the men who came to faith through Reuben A. Torrey, and this is where my brain goes blank. I thought it was Simpson, but that doesn't sound right. He was an American baseball player who became a dramatic, who became a Christian, who became a dramatic evangelist. Not enough clues? Him. And one of the people who came to faith through him was a bloke called Billy Graham. Kendall, Deal Moody, Ruben Torrey, the baseball player whom I can't remember, and Billy Graham. How God works his purposes out. You, talking to one person, lead someone to faith. Incredible, isn't it? So think about, Lord, where have you got me? And you might not be a person who uh, is working in, uh, you know, outside the home. You might be a full-time parent at home, mum or dad. 
That's where God's got you. How can you be a missionary, a witness for the Lord there, not just with your family, but with your neighbours and with whether it's mops or playgroup or, or whatever? How can God use you? That's the point that I want us to remember this morning. And then chapter 47, give me a few minutes and I just want to draw some truths from 47 rather than work my way through the chapter. It's a great chapter and it's worthy of maybe a second visit, but we don't have time. Um, I've either seen this on TV as a, a, um, a contest or it's been in movies or maybe a combination of both. Have you ever seen where people go to a, like a, a huge um, shopping mall and they're given a trolley and you have a time limit and they're allowed to go anywhere, grab anything they like, up and down the aisles, and after the two minutes or whatever the time frame is, whatever is in the trolley, they bring it back and they add up the price, but the person doesn't have to pay anything, they get to keep it. You ever seen that ring a bell for anybody? Well, that's not a bad parallel to life. We're in the supermarket of life. We've got a trolley. The difference is we don't know how much time we have. But our life is our time span. When you get to the end, back in the contest again, when you get to the end with your trolley of goodies, you would be disappointed, wouldn't you, if you just went straight to the, or maybe you wouldn't be, straight to the lolly aisle and you just filled it with lollies and chocolates and things and trivia and cheap things. You wouldn't do that, would you? If you won that contest, what would you do? I know what I would do. I'd learn that store, what's in which aisle and where is it? Then I would decide, what do I want? And what's the most expensive? I'll start with that one. And if I get that, then I'll work down from there. Wouldn't you do that? You would pre-think, you would pre-plan to get more, which is satisfying to you. Well, that's how we should live our life. We're going to get to the end of our life. We're going to look at our trolley. And is it going to be filled with insignificant, trivial things? Things that aren't going to count in the light of eternity, don't count in terms of the purposes and promises of God. What Jesus said, you remember that parable of the rich guy who had a bumper crop one year and he said, what am I going to do? And he said, I know what I'll do. I'm going to knock them down. I'm going to build bigger ones. <clears throat> and he does. And he's keeping it all for himself. And then what does it say? That very night, God said to him, you fool, tonight I require your soul. Don't make that mistake, people. Don't make the mistake of filling your trolley with the things that you haven't pre-thought enough about that are really important. What is important? And you've got to think about it. What are you putting into your trolley? What are you putting into your life? Where are you investing? And where does God fit into all of that? What's important to God? And what's important for God, to God in our lives? And it's not a point to be judgmental. And nor am I saying that you can't drive BMWs or Mercedes-Benz. not saying that at all. God blesses us and provides for us in all different sorts of ways. I'm just saying, let's think more about what we're putting into our lives. And let's orientate our lives to be God-centered like Jacob is becoming. Because in chapter 47, they prosper off the charts. The famine is still happening. Pharaoh becomes increasingly more wealthy, but the people in Israel in the land of Goshen 
are blessed by God. They increase in wealth and they increase in numbers. And my reflection is, what's important? And we get to the end of our life, it'd be good to get there with no regrets of saying, I wish I had. Because when the clock stops and the clock will stop, then our life gets evaluated. So we evaluate it now. How do we do that? How do we make this change midlife? How do I order my life so that I am rich towards God? One day at a time. If I go back to chapter 47, then it's a bit like here are the Israelites living in Egypt. And I bet you they wanted to be like the Egyptians because they were sophisticated. They were the smartest nation on the earth at the time. They were clever, well-dressed. It would have been very tempting for them to love to be like the Egyptians. But the Egyptians didn't let them, simply because of their occupation. So there's a clue for us. One way for us to be ordering our lives according to God is to commit ourselves on a daily basis to living separated lives. Not being like the Egyptians, not being like the world around us having a different priority system, being true to our identity of who we are in Christ as followers of him, which means we're going to have to make some denials and some commitments. And they'll be similar for most of us and different for some of us. We're all fleshly creatures. We all have bodies. We all have temptations and desires, and we're all orientated towards self, all of us. None of us are any better than anybody else. We're all flawed and we have our weaknesses. But even in the midst of our brokenness, we are still to choose and to order our priorities of God. How do, what do you want me to do with what I've got? And to some of you, he will say, I want you to sell everything and give your money to the poor and come follow me. He might say that to you. To others of you, he will say, I'm very happy with where you are and with what you have. And in fact, I'm going to give you more. But I want you to use it for my kingdom. Or somewhere in between. You've got too much stuff. I want you to prune it down. You focus too much on this or that or something else. I want you to focus more on me and my mission and my kingdom. Orientate your life that way. I wonder what the Lord would say to you. I will flip to this bit in chapter 47 because it's just remarkable. Here is Pharaoh, the most powerful king in the world at the time. And the brothers go and meet him and go out. And then Joseph in 47 and verse 7 and following says, then Joseph brought his father Jacob and presented him before Pharaoh. After Jacob the elderly, dusty shepherd, after Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Isn't that remarkable? Jacob blessed Pharaoh. That would be like Donald Trump coming in here. (laughs) 
and Brendan blessed him. <laughs> Maybe that's a bad parallel, I'm not sure. <laughs> it's just remarkable that Jacob bless and that Pharaoh lets him bless him. Because the Hebrews, book of Hebrews says, chapter 7, verse 7, that the stronger, the superior, blesses the weaker. What is there about Jacob that is superior to Pharaoh? There's a spiritual presence. He knows the true and living God. He's been walking with him. And I wonder if Pharaoh picked up on that. Pharaoh lets him bless him. He receives it. And at the end of it, maybe it's because of the age thing, because Pharaoh then says to him, verse 8, how old are you? And then Jacob says, not well. The years of my pilgrimage, so he's aware that he's a pilgrim. The years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. My years have been few and difficult, and they do not equal the years of the pilgrimage of my fathers. Then Jacob blessed Pharaoh again and went out from his presence. Twice. Jacob blesses Pharaoh. Don't be intimidated by the people of the world. Don't be intimidated by your boss. Don't be intimidated by the wealthy or by politicians. Don't be intimidated by them. You have something they don't have and you have something they can't take away if you know Jesus. And God wants you to bless them. God wants you to share the truth with them. On Sunday nights, a couple of months ago, we did a series called the Bells series. And Bell is an acrostic. Bells is an acrostic. B-E-L-L-S, we've mentioned this before. B stands, this is what God wants you to do in your network of relationships, either on a daily or a weekly basis or as opportunity presents itself. B is bless. Bless three people this week. Encourage them. Pray for them. Verbally bless them. Write them a letter. Send them a text. Send them however you want to do it. Bless them. Express to them uh, your affirmation of them and build them up. Bless them. Do that at least for one person in the church, but do it for two people outside the church. Non-Christians. Blow their socks off. That's what B is. Blow their socks off. E. Eat. Eat with them. Have a meal. Have a cup of coffee. And in the process of eating with them, you'll have a conversation with them. Build a bridge. Get to know them. L is listen to the Holy Spirit and see what opportunities are being presented to you. The other L is to learn about Jesus. Learn more and more and more about Jesus and how he did it and then become like him and do like he did. And S is share. As you get the opportunity, share the truth. That's what Jacob does with Pharaoh. He blesses him. One of the remarkable things in Egyptian history... I'm not sure if it's directly as a result of this or if it's just after this. But the Pharaoh moves away from all of the religions of Egypt and becomes a believer in one true living God for a period. Is that the seed which is planted right here? It's remarkable. You don't know what will happen when you do that. Bless as Jacob blessed Pharaoh, so let us bless others around us. Um, the last 17 years of Jacob's life, from this point on till he dies in Egypt, must have been the best years of his life. And it would be quite easy, I would imagine, for Jacob to have gone, 
Egypt isn't such a bad place. Good things are happening here. God's taking care of us. Let's just settle here. But in this chapter, you see this incredible strong faith at the end of 47. It's 28 and following. Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years, and the years of his life were 147. When the time drew near for Israel to die, he called for his son Joseph and said to him, If I found favour in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh and promise that will show me kindness and faithfulness. Don't bury me in Egypt. But when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. I'll do what you're saying. Swear to me. And so then Joseph does. At the end, getting towards the end of his life, Jacob is sharply focused on the promises of God. Not the bounty and the blessing of his current life, but God's at work and God promised that. And I want to be buried there, not here. Strong faith. And strong faith too, when you remember that it's 200 years have passed. 215 years have passed. More, 232 years have passed since God promised Canaan to Abraham. And there is no tangible indication to Jacob that God's going to make it happen. But he believed it was going to happen. Strong faith. Would have been so easy just to shelf God's promise, focus on this life. But Jacob keeps his priorities very straight. And the scripture says, and he knelt down and he worshipped. The good life of Egypt, like the good life around us, can be very tempting. And God had prospered them in this world and God has prospered us. But we must remember, like Jacob, that our purpose here is not to accumulate things. It's not to fill the trolley with trinkets. It's to use the contents of the trolley for God's purposes and for mission work. Our mission work with him in the work of the kingdom. Cross-cultural mission work. All sorts. We are to further God's purposes and to communicate that to them. Let me finish with this. Each of us have used up some time on the clock. We all have something in the shopping cart, in the trolley. I'd like you to look at your life out of today's message and evaluate. Is what is in my life proper and helpful for God's purposes? Is there anything which is distracting me or hindering me or obstructing God's will and work in my life? Because someday the clock will stop and all that stuff we don't take with us so take one day at a time take some time today think and plan about it I remind you of this then I'm going to pray then we'll sing that lovely song you know this story a professor before a university class brings out from below the bench a large glass beaker glass jar then he brings out some rocks 
And then he puts the rocks in the glass jar. He says to the audience, to the class, is it full? Yep, it's full. Can't get any more rocks in there. It's full. You can't get anything else in there. So then he brings out pebbles. And he puts the pebbles in, shakes it around, and they reel down. He says, is it full? That's full. You can't get anything else in there. So then he brings out some sand. Oh, you know this story. Good, good. And he jiggles that around and that swiggles down. And then he brings out coffee. <laughs> what a waste. Preacher girl. And he pours the coffee in and some of it goes in and trickles down. What does that mean, that story? Two things. What do you have to put in first? The rocks. Because if you put the other stuff in first, if you put the sand in first and fill it, how many rocks will you get in? None. You've got to put the big things, the important things in your life first. And then the other stuff will figure around. What's the second thing you learn from that? It doesn't matter how full your life is and how busy you are, there's always time for coffee. Amen? Amen. <laughs> We're going to pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jacob's development and for ours. And just like he focused on and sought your will and face in big decisions, Lord, can you help us to do exactly the same? And like Jacob, to have great faith in your promises and a commitment to your purposes of cooperating with you. Help us, Lord, to evaluate what's in our trolley and help us to decide what rocks we want in our lives in order that our lives might be rich towards you. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.